Hello, everybody. I'm Ron Waxman. This is CardiTube, and my next guest is Dr. Jerry Doris. Uh, currently, I believe, in Arizona. Where are you uh, nowadays, Jerry? Well, right now, uh, we've been uh, self-quarantined and self-contained in uh, Scottsdale uh, since last November and um, fully since last February. And normally, I live in Jackson, Wyoming, in a town called <coughs> Wilson, Wyoming. Great. And I hope you're keeping good health and safe. And um, I'd like to start actually from, um, I, I consider you one of the legends of interventional cardiology. I mean, you probably heard it before. Uh, I didn't know you from the beginning, but maybe you'll tell me what brought you uh, into the whole field of interventional cardiology. What, what incited you to be part of that and pioneering the field? Well, in actual fact, Ron, there was no such thing as interventional cardiology when we started. Um, and I know very well what was going on at the time. And in 1977, Andreas uh, had uh, done this thing in September 14th of uh, doing this balloon. But in June of 78, I had heard about uh, Simon Sturzer, who was on TV in New York, a slow day talking about the procedure and then went on August 26th to visit Richard Myler in San Francisco, um, stayed and watched uh, two cases. And then the very next uh, time um, we were there, I had met them again at the American Heart in November of that year um, and had made an inflation device, which we patented on the large one, uh, Auspuff Eindruck machine. And then again, my first uh, angioplasty in December 7th, 1978 on uh, two patients I brought from Milwaukee. But that was it. There were just a, a few people who had done that. And from that point on, um, I started to do angioplasty. And then I can still remember um, before going to San Francisco, I heard Richard Milo speak at the Mayo Clinic in uh, Rochester in July of that year and woke up in the middle of the night and said, I'm going to fix a thoracic aortic aneurysm. I have no idea how I'm going to do it, but this was going to be my life. It was sort of a... Um, sparkling moment and um, ultimately did that. But that was the beginning of angioplasty. And then in February of 79, I thought that if you could open up arteries in the heart, you certainly can open up arteries in the leg and uh, my first peripheral. Yeah, but the one thing that uh, was not there at that time, there were no devices, there were very few balloons. <laughs> I mean, you have to basically improvise on everything, right? So yeah. maybe, maybe tell me, how do you move this? I mean, what, did, what were the tools that you were using at that time to do angioplasty? Okay, so um, people may not understand. There was no such thing as an arterial sheath. So you had to do a cut down and you used a sheath system. There's no hemostasis on it that would allow you to put the catheters into the groin, the uh, catheters themselves had no movability and they were not talkable. 
they didn't hold its position. They were 10 and a half French and you had this large hematoma that was growing often in the groin. So um, from that point on, you also had uh, no arm uh, catheters. So we went to Cook and uh, we had some pure Teflon catheters used from the left arm to get into the right coronary uh, with a shape similar to an amplex. And you uh, had to do cut downs to get your peripheral catheters in. Uh, they were large and there are no easy means of doing it. So you had to know uh, about how to do surgery, um, which I am able to do having uh, been an obstetrician gynecologist before that um, years ago. So everything you did was you had to think about what you were doing. There were no guide wires. You had to understand about guide wires just to get the catheters up, whether they were stiff and what kind of transition zones they had from Cook at the time. So it was unusual and, and you continually had to improvise and uh, figure out what you were going to do and how you're going to get there, let alone whether you're going to get the device into the artery and let alone you can be able to blow up the balloon. And if you did blow up the balloon, uh, you had no idea what to, to do. Um, I can tell you that on a Saturday morning in, uh, when I was at St. Luke some years later, um, I had uh, a patient who was referred from Chicago who was a lady, a drug addict who had a, a tight left main stenosis. Everything else was open. And um, Dudley Johnson, the surgeon, was operating. And we uh, had this discussion about whether we should do this or not. But nobody wanted to operate on her because of her drug addiction and the problems associated with it. <laughs> so um, we decided to do that. And no one knew what was going to happen when you you know, put this balloon across her <laughs> left main and you're going to blow up this 3.5 millimeter and four millimeter uh, balloons without steerable wires across it. And we got it into place and blew up the balloon and uh, nothing happened except the blood pressure slowly deteriorated or just lowered. You deflated the balloon, blood pressure came back up. I did it again. Blood pressure went down. Did it again, called Dudley Dan, and we talked about the fact that even though you produced global ischemia, you had no arrhythmia. So all of these things were, were occurring at a time when it was new, fascinating, and probably I would be in jail if we're doing it today. Yeah, I mean, it was a completely different era, obviously. And uh, I think since then, there were a lot of major development of milestones. So if you have to name like big three ones that change in your opinion the entire field uh what would you say i think that after andreas uh did this double lumen uh, it's not mm -hmm. a balloon but a not a distensible segment um clearly the uh, using of the guide wires but john simpson and ned roberts um for acs that was a major improvement and then subsequent to that the uh, use of and development of a steerable, steerable guide wire by USCI was the first one. That was a, a real benefit to everyone. 
the arterial sheath was a, <laughs> it sounds silly, was a dramatic um, help in sizing and allowing you to get um, to where you wanted to go without using losing um, a large amount of blood. And then subsequent to that, uh, the last one was the idea of stenting, you know, clearly um, Patrick was involved in that, the Patrick Sarays and his team, and despite the issues involved, that led to the development of covered stents, using stents in larger places, putting things onto stents that allow it to be there, and continuing to allow the evolution of uh, percutaneous procedures in various parts of the body. Yeah, you had a passion when I remember when I was partially trained with you, I wouldn't say even trained visiting you and trying to adopt this, uh, you see one, you do one, you teach one. Um, I saw at that time you had a lot of passion to fixing abdominal aneurysm. It was interesting you said it at the beginning of this interview. Um, why was that? I mean, surgery was still doable. I mean, the surgeons, maybe the results were not as good, but why from all of the things, it was abdominal aneurysm, that autoracic aneurysm? When I was at Bronx Science in high school, I went to the hospital for special surgery and saw on this day for children, you know, visiting uh, places that uh, these kids were in body cast to change uh, kyphoscoliosis. I, I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I said, there must be a better way to do this. And I always looked at the fact that there must be a better way for doing things. And uh, when Juan Perotti and I um, first met and talked and had uh, very similar outlooks, we looked at to be a way of, of doing things that were just gonna be better. And you, if you knew the history of abdominal aortic aneurysm and thoracic aneurysm, you had to say, hey, you know, this was something that could be treated in a better way. Yes, there were going to be problems. And yes, there were going to be unfortunate people who would die, but it was still um, dramatic. And once you had that in place, you could start to think about thoracoabdominal aneurysms that really were problematic. Um, and I, I did that, the first one in 1993, and that lady is still alive of a thoracobinomenal. And then you have the next thing is you can actually fin um, <clears throat> fix a ascending aortic aneurysm. But how are you going to do that? And how are you going to take care of a dissection of the ascending aorta with a balloon in place? And so that led us to know about adenosine and stopping the heart. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you've positioned the aortic graft or, in the ascending aorta so it doesn't cover the coronaries and doesn't cover the subclavian. So you put a stent into the origin of the subclavian so you can see where it is, but that required you still to be able to hold it in place. So you had to do a transeptal and have guide wires coming out of the femoral vein and then all the way exiting out of the femoral artery so you could hold on to this and then you stop the heart and you made sure where you were and you inflated the balloon. And it seemed easy for many, but I spent many hours uh, preparing for it. I never went in 
to the cath lab thinking about, I don't know what we'll do, but we'll figure it out. I always had a plan and that was related to my training at Texas Heart with Dr. Hall and Dr. Garcia and particularly Ferendor Matur, who made me do a diagram of every angiogram that I did before we go in with a plan of how it was going to be solved and what we were going to do. And at that time, what we were going to do was really for Dr. Cooley to operate, but this was, I always had a plan and I always thought about what we're going to do. And I had at least five different, at least five different methods of taking care of problems that we thought about. And if you ask uh, some of my former fellows, including Dr. Ayer, that was really the most important aspect of it, knowing how to get out of a problem and having thought about it, not trying to figure it out in the cath lab. Yeah, and we do it today also with the structural, with 3D printing. Uh, we actually, for every device, we have the 3D printing model. We are trying to match the device to the anatomy of the patient. So uh, it, this is really crucial to be successful in the procedure. I, I wanna jump in really, really fast forward. I mean, you were innovator, not only of techniques, but also devices and a great teacher. I remember your courses and all this stuff. But at the end, at some point, you moved completely to a third phase of career, which is the rodeo. So what brings a guy who is doing intervention all of a sudden to, to the rodeo field? I mean, you grew up in Milwaukee. I mean, I haven't seen any horses there in Milwaukee. Either. Where was that coming from? I, I think it's it's part of a few things that I I, I tell physicians. Um, first of all, when I grew up in New York and Brooklyn, there were no horses, and I never got on a horse until I was sixty. Uh, I still rodeo today and have won uh, three championships in an age-blind, gender-blind sport, um, which is quite remarkable for a Jewish cardiologist from Brooklyn. Um, but what I, I learned when I left Milwaukee was that I had worked, as you know, pretty hard on call every single day, no matter where I was in the world with a large team. And I had to pass the baton. I had to let younger people know that they are going to be able to do this. We have to continue to educate, but we have to let go at a point in time. That's the hardest part to give up when you're king of the hill and you have to be detoxified from that. But when you do that, you don't give up being who you are. You're no longer only a physician because I've heard many times if, from people saying, if I'm not a physician, who am I? That's a sad commentary on life. So I'm an intimately involved in multiple medical device manufacturing companies and ideas that we try and bring forward in cardiology. And you pick up things that you've never done and you always wanted to do. I never got on a horse until I was 60 and then I wanted to learn how to ride and then you have to learn how to ride in competition, which I didn't want to do and now I compete. But it's a it's an evolution of continuing to study and uh, as we you and I know, you, a man dies when he stops studying Torah but that's really when he stops being educated and doing new things to continue to be alive. So I'm still involved in, as you know, uh, 
cardiology and interventional cardiology uh, in multiple directions. Um, but I also have passed the baton to people who can do things much better than I can. And to have that passion, um, that uh, and tenacity and perseverance that is necessary to do things well today. So maybe two final questions. The first one, you often visit hospitals, cat labs, you see other people doing performing procedure, maybe in a live case when I see you coming to big conferences. I mean, don't you have like sometimes they feel what this guy is doing there, let me go in and, and do this by myself. I mean, don't you feel it in your fingertips that something in you want to come and do that procedure? I mean, how could you just completely abandon that? Um, the last time I operated was in Uzbekistan um, in Tashkent. And the reason I was, we were there and I was going to be teaching for a week. And uh, that teaching came about after we made arrangements to travel and, uh, to Uzbekistan. And when I got at the cath lab, I was teaching them about the same thing I did, you know, angiograms and diagrams and such, and they had a right coronary and they couldn't get across. And then they said, put on the gloves. And then I was operating for that whole week. Uh, I enjoyed it. And it is like riding a horse or a bicycle, um, but you have to give it up. You have to know that it's more about the patient and you need someone who is more alert, reflexes are better, thought process is different, and they have the tenacity and drive to make sure that not only do they operate, but they take care of the patients afterwards. So you have to learn, you have to move on. And I'm not embarrassed or anything. But are there times when I see people doing things that I think are absolutely <laughs> crazy and wrong? Yes. But you bite your tongue. Yeah. And maybe finally, um, you taught a lot of fellows. And I know you have passion to youngsters who starts the field. And many of our viewers are as such. I mean, the fellows, young career, early career, career in interventional cardiology which is an established field right now with exams and who knows what. But what would be your suggestion for someone who starts his career right now in interventional cardiology? Um, I, I, will, I have and I do tell people many times that if you become a technician, you've really lost the art of being a physician. So you have to understand medicine and you have to be focused on what you're going to do. And you have to have preserve a certain amount of independence, which is very difficult in this corporate world where you become an employee one day and then they tell you, you're also a physician, have these obligations to the patients. Um, I think it's very difficult but if you're going to be focused in doing interventional cardiology, that's what you have to do. It's not a nine to five job. It's not a five days, eight hours a day job. It's a full-time job because you're going to do more and more difficult cases because the simple cases are not gonna be there. And to be a good interventional cardiologist, you're gonna to have to learn how to do multivessel coronary disease, half of you, half your practices often will be in peripheral vascular disease. So you're gonna to have to understand medicine more than you think about putting down a balloon or a stent and using various other adjunctive devices. It's a full-time job. 
And to do it well, you have to do it with tenacity, perseverance, and dedication to it. Just as Andreas did and Martin Kaltenbach and all of those who precede you and as Patrick Serres has done and Simon Sturzer and Richard Myler before it. Jerry, honored to have you as a, our guest uh, today. Uh, really a legend in the field and I hope that our viewers take the last message which is so important. Uh, be passionate. If you will be half passionate as Jerry, you will reach very, very far. Uh, and, and again, I, I wish you again, continue to contribute to the field, no matter what you do in your device development and your advice, be healthy and be careful on those horses, please. <laughs> you too, Ron, thank you very much for the invitation and the ability to talk to these people. Thank you. Take care. All right.